you know, we were talking about inflation. And I think another way to describe this dynamic, um, as you were describing, there is this kind of a race between real growth, the expansion of, you know, actual delivery of goods and services in the economy and the increase in the money supply, which again is just, is not the wealth itself is just a call option on that wealth. Mm -hmm. And so long as the expansion of the money supply is um, close to, or a little below, even can even run a little above that expansion in goods and services. It's almost imperceptible, right? That the effectively central bank or the government more generally is harvesting this economic surplus that's being created by just creating, you know, diluting the uh, interest of others through expanding the money supply. So, I mean, I think that's a really important understanding is it's not, you know, the illusion is that assets are becoming more valuable because the actual um, numerator through which we are interpreting the value is being diminished, right? So your value, the value of your home may be increasing year over year, but it's not, it's not the actual value, right? It's, it's the nominal value. Um, and effectively the it, it's, it's a tax. This is why it's a tax because they're just scraping a little bit off the top of this economic surplus that's being created by real actions of real productive market actors. Um, and so it's insidious in a way in that it's illusory. And this is, I'm always astounded at how effective this illusion has been. We're recording this in December, mid-December, 2021. And just recently, President Biden put out this tweet where it shows a video of him signing a bill saying the United States always pays its debt on time. That's what this is about. And he's paying, quote unquote, paying the debt by increasing the debt ceiling. So this is expanding the government's borrowing, engaging in further deficit spending to pay the balances owed on previous deficit spending. This is, again, the self-deception or the the, the lie, right, that we're trapped in. And I, I'm not sure... It, I get a little lost here. Does he actually believe that? I don't know. Is he completely full of shit? Just, just spewing lies onto people knowingly, maliciously? I'm not sure. But factually, we know, you know, through the exploration of this book, that that's it's it's oxymoronic, right? It's nonsensical to say you're repaying debt with debt. And I my my intuition is that this entire oxymoron is born from the oxymoron of the debt-based currency itself, right? If, if money is that which extinguishes debt, what is a debt-based money? It's an oxymoron in terms, in actuality. And it, it, you, know, you describe this inflation spiral that we enter into. People often use this analogy of addiction, right? We're addicted to fiat currency. And I think it's more than an, an analogy, actually, because there is this reciprocal narrowing that occurs. 
where you've introduced new money to try and solve a problem. You've, you've enjoyed some short run stimulative benefit from that. Um, but it, but as, yeah, you know, you expanded the money supply of 5%. The next time you need to expand it by 5% times 5% or 105% times 105%, as you were describing earlier, and you get into this, again, you're, you're injecting hidden risk into the economy over time. Reservoirs of demand absorb a lot of this inflationary pressure, as you described, government bonds, equities, real estate, et cetera. But eventually there's a psychological break at some point, right? And it's, it's, this is so interesting because once inflation expectations are widely held to be um, negative, let's say people expect inflation, then it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts because people begin to sell the dollars or the fiat currency to hedge against the very inflation they are anticipating the selling of which creates the inflation. So it is this, it is fundamentally psychological. It, the, 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 trick works, the trick works, the trick amplifies itself because the early stages of an inflation, when people first start to see prices go up, especially housing prices, the first thing most people do is they increase their cash, their cash holdings because they think, well, I'll, I'll, I'll wait till it's affordable. The increased cash holding actually dampens the effect of the inflation and allows it to go on for longer. So the, the initial burst of inflation actually creates conditions which make the inflation worse in the long run, but, but invisible in the short run. The, the, la the last stage of an inflation is when people realize, oh, prices are never going down. Uh, I get it. I better buy it this afternoon before it goes up further. And when and and that's why inflation is purely psych, a state of psychology. Money supply is purely a state of psychology too. And that's why I think ultimately, I think some Bitcoiners kind of like, me too, kind of like get a little bit lost in like contemplating money supply because um, you have to think not only pe people's wealth is measured in what it, it they call near money, which is assets. Anything that can be that can be in your mind, not in reality, but in your mind, anything that be, can be converted to money quickly becomes part of your concept of your wealth and leads mm -hmm. to your sense of your value. And so, the money supply does not take into account the fact of how much Bitcoin people have, how many bonds people have. Doesn't take into account access to a HELOC, home, home equity line of credit. All of that actually increases people's purchasing power psychologically. And so as the asset wealth increases, that, that is asset wealth is literally part of inflation and proof of inflation. And in the, the, the one thing that really stopped me cold, there's a one line in the middle of dying of money where he talks about one of the hallmarks of the most dangerous point in an inflationary cycle is when asset prices are at an all-time high and you have yet to see any inflation in real goods and services. That is the sign that something is about to break. And when I read that, I read that in 2019 
And like, it kind of stopped me cold. I was like, we're there right now. Yeah. You know, I, I just, it's so important, man. It's so important that there's an illusion here, right? Like as you're describing the asset inflation itself is making people believe that they are wealthier than they are. And then they will go out and borrow against those assets, right? That have been going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a directional bias. They just think my house has been going up. My stocks have been going up. When it does that enough times over enough periods, you start to presume it will do it forever, right? This is human nature in a way. So you're taking on more debt, but this is fragilizing the economy so that when there is a shock, you get these look. You know these liquidation cascades, and the the risk just—it's a—it's a pathology. It's a socioeconomic pathology is the best way I know to describe it. Um, and again, back to the reciprocal narrowing that's happening here. This is like the alcoholic drinking. You know, it's oh my my situation's bad. Whatever the alcoholic is using to rationalize the drinking, they lost their job, or maybe they're having some other personal problems. If they could just have one more drink, that would help them feel better about the situation. But the drink itself is actually contributing to the situation, right? It's the reason they lost their job or their marriage or whatever the thing is. So that you get into this vicious psychological self-destructive dynamic. We know, like we understand those mechanisms of addiction biologically, individually, but this inflation or corruption of money more generally we're describing is just a macrocosmic reflection of that, right? Humanity is engaged in this very process of like, oh, there's some pain. Let me just print some money to try to solve it. But then they've just, you know, they've injected the patient with a syringe and they're creating the risk. So I just, not to belabor the point, but um, it's not just an analogy. It's like the same fundamental psychological dynamics at play at the individual scale are at play collectively um, via fiat. Well, you talked earlier about like everyone. I mean, one of the best podcast episodes, if I like a podcast, I'll listen to it maybe five, six times. It's just to try and memorize it. Listen to the noted podcast with Johnny Dilly from like 19, from like, from like 2018, 2019. And he talks about Bitcoin is about strict rule adherence. The, 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 the closer you hew to the rules, you better you, the better you do at the game. Hmm. And the system that we're in now also has rules. And the rules are that you exploit your debt for advantage over your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the sad facts of the era that we're in is that if you don't contemplate leverage, I mean, I remember I called you, I called, I was driving once and I called you and I was like, I have to think about leverage. I'm allergic to debt. You know, I told you that story mm-hmm. about my parents. I grew up hating debt. Um, I was married, my first marriage, we got so up to our eyeballs in debt, credit card debt. I thought it would never happen to me. Took me years to work out from that debt. I I hate debt so much. And yet here I am in 2020, it was. And I was like, I think as someone who wants to maintain wealth, maximizes wealth, I'm actually game theoretically obliged to consider leverage 
mm-hmm. because everyone else is considering leverage. And you and I talked about it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I think I have to think about this. I am, you know, I think about this stuff every day, all day. I'm currently engaged in leverage. I'm not 100% leveraged. I'm not 150% leveraged. I'm not even 120% leveraged, but I'm leveraged. I'm engaging in the system Mm -hmm. because I I think I just think about the system and I just think it is inevitable. You look at like, I heard a short, short discourse on the unification of Italy when the Lombard region invaded North to South and the, 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 the South was like very wealthy, very responsible, didn't run up debts, didn't spend a bunch of money on the military. And the North took a huge gamble, leveraged themselves, borrowed money from other countries, including England, raised an army, conquered the South, and then made the South absorb their debts. So you can be super responsible, not take on leverage, and then you will lose to the country that does. So like, mm-hmm. let's say the United States hadn't done what it had done over the last 50 years, but every other country did and forced through inflation or leverage their citizens to foot the bill for the expansion of the country. That's really what, you know, if it's, if it's domestic inflation, then your, then your local population pays for it from their labor. If it's international inflation, we've exported our inflation, then the rest of the world has paid for us. I mean, no one alive knows what it's like for the US to pay its own way. But because Mm -hmm. we sell our debt internationally, other countries and other people around the world and then savers, domestic savers, have been paying directly for the US living uh, above its means. Mm So, but you either do that if everyone's doing it, if you don't do it, you're at a distinct disadvantage. So like there's an inevitability to the system that we're in, mm-hmm. where if like suddenly the United States had been super responsible, I don't know what the world would be like and I don't know what position we'd be in. I think this whole system, I don't look at it with judgment. I just try and understand it and see if I can like trade my way to the other side. Mm-hmm. And that trade is simply buying Bitcoin. Like that, that's the whole thing, you know, but like, I do see a, a ton of inevitability in this system. I don't see that it could have gone any other way. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I, I'm, I'm thinking here of just the nature of options or optionality. One of the things that, um, you know, I talked to Sailor for a long time. One of the things he said to me really stuck with me. He said that you could sum up the entirety of business school into one sentence, and that is to keep your options open. <laughs> and um, this is, I mean, this is Gresham's law in money, right? It's like if the money by fiat, the face value is divergent from its real value, the market determined value, then you create this incentive for individuals, for everyone, every economic actor actually, to hoard the good money, hold the good money, create reservation demand for the good money, the market valued money, the which is effectively undervalued, right? It's um the face value says it's X, but it's actually X plus one. And to sell or borrow and sell 
the bad money to to buy the good money, basically. So, and uh, you know, this whole game, the shelling point of this game is scarcity, right? It's like which one of these monies? I, I guess we could be a little more specific. The rigidity of supply. Which one of these monies is expected to have the most rigid supply over time? That is the one. All all other properties of money held equal, ceteris paribus, that you should select as a rational economic actor. And so, the, like to your point with in the Civil War, and I talked to Dominic Frisbee about this. You get pulled into this game regardless. You can't just. This is kind of like what Safetyn said, where you you cannot ignore the consequences of someone else holding a money that is harder than yours. It's not you. It's not enough, right? You you have to play this game, otherwise you're going to be economically outcompeted. And this, when you come to understand this game theoretic dynamic or this this dance uh, or positioning to have options at the expense of others, you start to understand why, you know, we're getting maybe a lot ahead of ourselves, but why Bretton Woods existed, right? The, the United States government held the most gold, wanted to be able to externalize inflation, basically to export inflation to the world. We send them certificates of paper or database entries called dollars. They send us goods and services. This is an asymmetric, you know, a quote unquote exorbitant privilege that was intentionally incepted. And it all comes down to options, right? Just this groups of people trying to keep their options open at the expense of others. And the system is, this system is so complicated. And it is so difficult to peer into this system. Though I spend all of my time in contemplation of the system, I know that it's, I just don't understand it. So you ask if like Biden understands the bill he's signing. I doubt it. Yeah. I I Did you see that clip of, of uh, AOC on Don Lemon? It went around a few months ago where she's like talking about why we don't have inflation and that, it's a it's kind of a fantastic clip because she's so her, I, I I actually truly believe that her heart is correct in the right place. I really think that she's here to help people. I I, I really like her. Hmm. And when she talks about inflation, I think she's so wrong, but she's so compelling <laughs> and she believes so dearly what she's saying. When I saw that clip, I thought, oh, I get how a society walks willingly into an inflation. Mm. She said, if we get this wrong, then we'll get more unemployment and interest rates will go up. Meaning, if we don't have accommodative monetary policy, if we do this right and we build more and we invest more, then um, I, I, I just like that clip kind of summed up for me, especially because it's someone I like talking mm. and getting it wrong. I'm like, oh, it's no longer a mystery how this happens. In um, 
you know, I, I used to think that the comparisons to the U.S. to the Weimar inflation, I was like, well, that's Weimar. You know, it's a thing. We, it's like kind of a little Petri dish. We can study it, but it doesn't really apply. But the more I study it, the more I the more I see that it applies in ways that really kind of freak me out. Like the um, the, the the central bank president there at the time. um he actually reversed the causality of the inflation in their money printing. Uh, His view uh-huh. and what he stated to the public was we are not inflation is not coming from our money printing. Our inflation is coming from the fact that the world no longer trusts us. And so the mark has become devalued on the international foreign exchange market. Because the mark has become devalued, prices have gone up. And because prices have gone up, we must accommodate with money printing. <laughs> so it's the most ultimate gaslighting in all of history. It's like, no, no, no. We're not causing prices to go up by printing money. Prices are going up because, because of everyone else. And we're just trying to do the thing that makes business possible. When I read that, I was like, oh, that's now that scares me. That scares me. That's incredible. Yeah, the the path to hell is paved with good intentions, as they say. And this yeah. this reversal of causality you're describing, I think we're witnessing it with the supply chain disruptions today. Right? They're saying that supply chain disruptions are the reason we have inflation. They're the reason CPI is printing it. You know. A forty-year high, or whatever it is, but it's the opposite. Right? It's the actual expansion of the money supply that creates these dislocations in the supply chain and in the global economy. Um, is it not to say, not to exclusively say, there's only one direction of causality here. I think, like most complex systems, there's a mutual influence. Right? There's there's a reciprocity between these these phenomena. But um, it's amazing, I guess, how, how we have this proclivity to self-deceive or even self-gaslight, I guess, right? Where the central bank is saying that it's not our fault, it's your fault for not believing in us. <laughs> it's like if someone, you know, I don't know, like if you're lying to someone and then you're saying, well, it's your fault that I'm lying because you don't believe me. It just doesn't like it. It breaks the brain. It it doesn't. No, my my studying studying this stuff. It has it breaks my brain because it makes me realize. I'll tell you. You want to know what the bear case for Bitcoin is? The bear case for Bitcoin is we're just dumb, and I might be wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I I I I go into dinner. We do dinner with the kids every night, five thirty, and I go in, and I've like my head has been in. I've been focusing on Weimar a lot, and I'm just like. I could have everything wrong. I mean, I, I, I could, I could, that's all I know is that I could have everything wrong. That's how complex it is. And the further you look, the further you, the more examples you see of people who didn't get it. The, 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 the um, the pursuit of economics through like scholastic study, which is basically what I'm doing, you realize that like every economist starts off with 
critique of past economists. That's sort of like the bread and butter is like settling. Even Saifedean's book, it's like, you're like, oh, he doesn't like this guy. Oh, this is a score he's got to settle. You know, like (laughs) there's just like, you get steeped in everyone who got it wrong and you feel like you then have to go read who got it wrong. And um, it's easy to come unmoored and to forget like sort of some simple truth that you started with. Yes. Um, absolutely. And it is, you know, we're, we're living through the birth of this science really. You know, again, I, I always try to remind myself that before the mid 1800s, there was actually competing thought about values. Like there was a school of thought that believed utils, right? An objective elementary particle of value existed in the fabric of reality. They believed that. Um, before we realized, oh no, value is just a matter of preference, right? It's all, it's relevance within the the scope of market actor aims. That's what's creating value here. Um, these are early days, right? We're coming out of the economic dark ages, I think largely thanks to Bitcoin, studying the nature of money and, and markets um, in a new light. Yeah, I didn't, I, I, I bought Bitcoin in 2015. I'd started reading about it. And as soon as I bought it, it was like, um, I was going to France and I was like, oh wait, I have world money now. Mm-hmm. That was the first like revelation. I was like, I have, I am a citizen of the world and I don't need a passport. What did I just buy? What is this? Mm-hmm. I was kind of hooked by the concept of it being freedom money because it felt like that's what it was. And then everything else opened up for me after that. So, yeah, I think this is just the beginning, not to mention the fact that we've like had the wool pulled over our eyes for, I mean, many generations, like not only we have the wool pulled over our eyes, but our parents did too. So like we were raised by people without understanding and they were raised by people without understanding mm-hmm. in terms of like the nature of the monetary system. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. The blind leading the blind intergenerationally up to the point of Bitcoin, it seems. Um, maybe a very fascinating tangents were on. Maybe we can pivot back towards the book yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. So I want to give a framework for, first of all, I have to always thank this uh, Twitter handle at not at natural money, BTC who um, hipped me to uh, Pally's work. Um, and actually it was Rothbart who quoted, who cited Pally as a reference in uh, what has the government done to our money? So it's all very mm. circular. Um, the book, just if, if you go and read the book, it's called The Twilight of Money. And like like you said- Twilight um, of Gold. Tri- sorry, The Twilight of Gold. It, um, it jumps around in time a lot because he's very knowledgeable and he like assumes a lot of knowledge on the part of the reader. So like, I want to give you my own 
framework for the book because I think it's helpful to read to kind of know what you're reading. He's really good at drawing like a prose narrative from figures, which is a it's an incredible talent unto itself. But you kind of need to. It, it took me a little while to figure out what I was reading. The gold standard was very short. The true classical gold standard didn't really get into full swing until like the 1870s. And then by 1914, it was over. So that's 45 years at most. And the gold standard was actually the a sterling standard that London was the center of this financial system. And London had such an effective monopoly on the management of the global gold standard through which they facilitated an international network of credits lending that were periodically settled in gold. And um, the British Central Bank, the Bank of England, was it was actually private until 1946. So you're talking about a private for-profit business that had an exclusive charter to print notes. And this was their business. From the author's perspective, they did actually a decent job. I think Pally has respect for them. So the book isn't an indictment of central bankers, although the failure of the gold standard and the failure of our monetary system actually was the failure of the central banks. But the failure of the central banks is largely like human frailty and the accident of World War I. Like, again, it sort of seems like it just, it couldn't have been avoided, but it wasn't the gold standard's fault. Mm. So the reason why I think Twilight is a really good reference for what we're going through now is that the British economy had become so financialized from 1852 to 1914, they had a trade surplus, but they were at a trade deficit from like finished goods and actual physical exports, but they had a trade surplus totally due to banking insurance and revenue from international investment. So that's why they had a trade surplus. Mm. So in a financialized economy, it was critical for England to have their currency remain dominant. Therefore, like the currency, the British currency was a bridge to actual gold. They were brokering the settlement of debts with gold. And convertibility for gold at a fixed ratio. The ability for the world's economy to run was entirely predicated on credit. It was no longer running on gold like for each payment. It was running on credit. And in order for payments to be made, someone had to keep lending. And in order for someone to keep lending, they had to have the guaranteed ability to settle the loan in gold at a fixed ratio. And that's what the Bank of England was doing for a couple centuries. And ultimately, people lost faith in their ability to do that. And then England could no longer run the world economy because they didn't actually have a trade surplus. So their lead as a nation was based solely on their service of managing the world's credit. And their domination as a financial power would come to an end if they couldn't maintain their currency relative to the gold standard. And that is exactly the situation that we're in today. You're seeing a a world reserve currency, now it's the dollar. And the financialization of our economy is based solely on our ability to maintain value of the dollar. So that to me is like a very key parallel. Like when you're reading about the gold standard up to 14, you're reading about how the Bank of England managed sterling and how it failed ultimately. 
So like the book kind of has an A storyline and a B storyline. The A storyline is a nation about to lose its reserve currency status, which they don't really lose until 30s. And the B storyline is how the gold standard didn't really lead to the depression, but rather it's about an explosion of credit before the depression that so the, the depression actually wasn't was caused much earlier. The depression was caused in the 1914. So to look at the depression as like a failure of bank policy in the in the late 20s, no, the 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 depression actually was created much earlier, mm. and the explosion of credit and the and 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 why credit exploded in the in the you know 24 25 that explains why the depression happened. So it's a book about how things went wrong mm-hmm. and what went wrong, but that it was just like also kind of accidental and beyond the scope of anyone to change, but it wasn't gold. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, no. Well, well said. Um, you know, in a way what's occurring to me here is that England was kind of the original information economy, right? They, mm-hmm. they were providing the informational systems necessary for capitalism to work basically. Um, so, you know, to your point, they had this deficit on actual goods and services, but the financial economy, they were the natural monopoly on the financial modern financial economy in a way. Yeah. And um, they were good at it. Yeah. They're really super, super good at it. Yeah. You read um, Badgett's uh, um, description of the money market, 1873, it's like very conversational, really funny book about how the money market worked in 1873. And it's like, you think you're reading a modern book. He's like, let's say you're a, a trade merchant and you're from the old school and you have 50,000 pounds of capital and you want to make 10%, you have to invest 5,000. But if you're poor, but you can borrow the same amount, you can make less and have a larger percentage return on your initial cap. If you only have, you're, you're, you're a young merchant, you're willing to take, to take um, lower prices and you also want to make 10%. Well, you start with 5,000, but you borrow 45 and you only have to make, you, you're, you're, you only have to make a little bit to make that same 5% return on capital and you've done it all through borrowing. And mm-hmm. that's why everyone uses the money market and people, like from the quote unquote old school, he's writing in 1873, they're no longer profitable because they don't want to spend their capital and they don't borrow. And mm-hmm. you're like, oh my God, we're totally reading about today. And 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 the money market in England was like more advanced than anywhere in the whole world. And it was run by the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. The, the deception of calling these things Bank of England, like again, it's a private bank. Yeah. You know? Um, so anyway, that's, that's the, uh, that's kind of my framing for the book and the latter half. And I think what we'll talk about towards the end is more about how the United States got into the depression. So he's kind of like, there's plenty of the book that focuses on that, but that to me is like the un, unwritten sea story of the book is like how the United States got into its predicament, but it's kind of, 
I think he explains that as in an effort to explain that the United States didn't get into the depression because there wasn't enough gold or Mm -hmm. because gold was too restrictive. That's not why. Um, Yeah, that's the narrative proffered retrospectively by Keynesian economists, which are essentially um, apologists, right, for for central banks or or national monopolization of money. Um, I think the other important point here is that there was this conscious decision, largely driven by Isaac Newton, as I understand it, for England to go on to a gold standard uh, leading up to this, right, that he... And I don't, I don't know the details of it, but he did make the decision ultimately that, you know, between a gold and a silver standard, he put England onto a gold standard. And presumably that was contributory to their center of gravity uh, as the financial capital of the world. Um, Newton, sorry. No, just to finish the point there. So initially to your point, it was a, it was a private enterprise that was, you know, hierarchically still below gold in a way, right? They were ultimately the gold custodian. They were the gold, they were providing the financial services related to gold, the uh, the transactions, the custody, borrowing, et cetera, but would ultimately attempt to evolve beyond gold, right? To, to try to move to this fiat standard where they, you know, as you described, they tried, attempted to engineer prosperity. So going from a business model that is uh, more reflective of a free market function, right? And that they were, they were augmenting the scalability of gold, something like that, making gold yeah. more useful as money to trying to remove that, um, swap out the base layer, right? With remove gold and add government debt, largely through um, a number of machinations that that I'm sure we'll go into. Or private, I mean, it was actually private debt. You know, like adding yeah. adding pr- private debt made the world a lot more productive. Um, the burgeoning of credit that came about during the, like, the first industrial revolution was like, it sounds like it was really helpful. I don't have a problem with it. It sounds like people, you know, they still counted on, money ultimately being convertible with gold at a fixed ratio, but the explosion of credit and credit instruments was like a natural offshoot as the first industrial revolution. And people who were really good at facilitating credit understood that there were credit pulses and there were credit drawdowns. That was part of the system. Mm -hmm. And a credit drawdown requires a flexible wage price structure. He, 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 um, Pally talks about that a lot. We don't have that. I don't think today, you know, the, 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 the restiveness of unions, people's inability or not inability, they're just not willing to take a pay cut, but pay cuts, um, pay cuts are a fact of life. Whether you negotiate for a nominal pay cut or not, you're going to get a pay cut and it may be an unconscious pay cut that you get through inflation or maybe one that you agree to. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, ultimately wages vary. And the people who were the custodians of the system and the participants in it were more accustomed to it then. Wages went up and wages went down. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, there's like 
a, a very intellectually appealing concept behind the gold standard. And it was this, um, the balance of payment system was simply that like, if a country got too wealthy in gold, then prices would rise in that country. Mm-hmm. And if prices rise in that country, then it puts them at a competitive disadvantage to another country who has less gold, AKA less money. And so then trade flows to that country until their prices go up and trade flows out of the country that got rich. And there's this like self-balancing mechanism that that mechanism doesn't like account for the fact that some countries are just better at certain industries than others. Mm -hmm. So it's not like if England's wine prices get too, too super low, that suddenly everyone's going to want to buy British wine. So it doesn't like work for every industry, but this idea of um, the way that money settled like water and like the money in a given country will sort of spread equally around the sale of the, the total supply of saleable values. And so prices will go up and down irrespective of the wealth or productivity of that country. So if there's less money, they may have, they may make more, but the prices will cost less. That's like part of the natural balancing mechanism between countries. And um, I feel like we've kind of lost the ability for prices to go down. Like we're just, Mm. we just don't have that now. Housing prices, people can't tolerate that. We're not allowed to experience what it would be like. So. Yeah, which is, I mean, when you actually evaluate what an economy is doing, that's, that's asinine that you, 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 you want prices to go down. And this may be a bitter pill to swallow when you're a wage earner, right? That you don't want the, cost of your wages to decline, but it fails to account for broader price deflation. So, um, you know, the price of your labor may be contracting, but your the cost of living that you are subject to should also be declining in a hard money free market economy. But we've, again, inverted that via fiat where we're just constantly Printing more money, produce expanding the money supply, um, in an attempt to, I guess, ward off any potential wage or price deflation based on this false ideology that we need. Because it's pol- it's 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 politically very unpalatable to have yes. deflation. It's the most yes. politically unpalatable force in the world. Yes. Yeah, and it just keeps coming back to this, like not thinking past the first order consequence, right? It's like just the first order is like, I want my home and paycheck to go up, to go up based in money terms. Yes. But not looking at, and this is why I always talk about this. It's, it's meta. When you start to think about money, it's, you have to look at what is looking to understand the truth of what's happening. Um, and so we should, I mean, again, if you just think about it, reason from first principles, we're trading and innovating to create more with less, to accomplish greater results with less efforts. That is the point. That is the meaning of economization, right? That is the word economy. We should or would expect prices to decline over time if we are successfully economizing human action at scale. Um, but 
you know, we need to part of doing that. And this is where it gets kind of murky. You needed faster money, right? So we needed to actually, to your point, credit was so great. It contributed to growth initially because ledger entries are much faster than gold settlement, right? If we can just send a letter to the bank of England or whatever communication method they're using, we can settle our accounts through this intermediary much faster, much more efficiently with greater economization than we could actually shipping gold to one another and securing gold. So this credit money enabled this economic boom because it economized the money function, but it, it, it um, almost defeated itself, right? It defeated its own economization in the long run as we, as we get into debt-based money itself. I think it was World War I that broke the system. I think the system was on track probably to maybe, maybe, maybe England couldn't hold on to their monopoly of the financial system. Maybe it would have broken at some point. But as long as there was the insistence on convertibility at a fixed ratio, I think that system could have gone on. But it took something as massive as World War I to just break our connection with convertibility. I'd say like, if there's one theme in this book that like really hit home with me as a Bitcoiner was the, the notion of convertibility. That convertibility is the average everyday person's ability to issue a vote of no confidence to the government. Yes. And you can do it every day, any day of the week. And people can say, I've had this discussion, people I'm like, well, we get voting, you know, voting is a, but mm. you get to vote once every four years, maybe once every two years, gold standard convertibility is your ability to issue a vote of no confidence all day, every day, at least every day that the bank is open. And that is the ultimate and possibly the only check you might need unless you're facing a tyrant. You know, one one sort of like qualifier that Pali repeats in this book is that managed economies, socialist economies can work under a total dictatorship mm-hmm. because the, the populace doesn't really have the right to like, they don't have freedom as consumers. And so, you know, all of these all of these totalitarian policies about money can work in a totalitarian state. But if there's any freedom, if the consumers have any freedom at all, then it doesn't, it doesn't work. Mm. Yeah. But convert- gold standard. Yeah. Convertibility, proof of keys. They're the same thing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I view convertibility as effectively the ability to call the bluff of government or a bank, right? If, we're, we're again conducting commerce in this credit money, which is this warehouse receipt to real money, which would be gold mm-hmm. in this instance. If there's ever a lack of confidence, as you described, in the custodian or the government, um, you can effectively express that thesis, that express that lack of confidence by pulling money out. Right? You, you, you're you're taking energy out of this institution that you don't trust through convertibility. And that is precisely why banks suspend convertibility first. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and the suspension of convertibility, the gold standard had like some of the weaknesses were that it was it was um it was a commitment mechanism meaning we will commit to this policy of convertibility, but it had these escape clauses. And one of the escape clauses that everyone understood was war. 
But in having escape clauses such as war, it actually incentivizes war. Exactly. Because it, it's, the pre, it's the one precondition that allows you to suspend the rules. And which is a very deep point of the bad, I will use the word bad as I think if we consider war to be morally repugnant, the bad incentives associated with gold, ultimately, the the physicality of gold. It's not gold itself. It's because it's physical, it's a suboptimal money. So we have to engage in credit instruments to increase its transactability. But this introduces an incentive to break convertibility, ultimately, to wage war, which is, I mean, it's crazy. It's self-defeating, right? Germany launched into World War I, and they didn't think it would be politically popular to tax everyone to pay for the attack on France. And so they thought, we're going to win the war. We have it all planned out. I mean, it's like we talk about this obligation to consider leverage. They sort of ran the numbers. They were super smart. And they're like, we're going to win this. We'll pay for it with inflation instead of taxes. And we're going to keep our gold. And we'll win the war. And then the people who we beat, they'll pay for it. That was the bet. Mm -hmm. And because they made that bet, the rest of the world was like, well, we can't pay to defend ourselves. And uh, and taxes probably aren't going to be profitable either. So we'll do the same thing. It's an arms race. So everyone suspended convertibility. United States actually didn't. United States went into World War I and didn't spend convertibility right away. That happened a little bit later. But the United States actually stayed on the gold standard during World War I. But yeah, that was that is like a gamble that Germany made and they and they lost. Yeah. Hey everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, Consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Germany going to war. It's kind of like what we talked about earlier, where the game theory becomes imposed on others. Mm-hmm. Right? They decide, hey, we're gonna we're planning this war, we're gonna win this war, we'll pay for it with inflation, but we'll force the defeated. Or the, the conquered countries to basically pay for the war that we mm-hmm. in, in uh, retroactively, I guess, through tribute. And so it's kind of like what was just occurring to me as you were describing that is this it's almost like geopolitical 
mergers and acquisitions or something, <laughs> or <laughs> like, we're just going to corrupt our money a little bit to go and conquer this additional territory. And then we'll absorb the economy of that territory and use it to backfill the expenses of the war. Um, and, you know, again, I think this is such a crucial moral fiber to look at in the relationship between war, money, violence, things like this, because that's what, you know, the great hope of Bitcoin, at least, is that it would just prevent it. atrocities like that. You know, one group of individuals that specialize in violence deciding, hey, we're going to effectively plunder the Commonwealth via inflation to go and conquer another territory and expand the business, right? Expand the business of government. Um, in theory, Bitcoin being this hyper-portable, hyper-convertible money would just let people economize their votes of no confidence against that action or against those types of re regimes. <laughs> I was just imagining like, like, a, like a CNN style town hall where like the German government is, <laughs> is announcing this policy. Okay. We're gonna do this war and uh, we're not going to pay for it right away. And like, there's someone in the back who's like, uh, excuse me, I have a question. Um, so we'll get more Bitcoin out of this. <laughs> and the government's like, I mean, the theory, in theory, yeah, we'd get more Bitcoin. But they won't. Like if, 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 if the populace, if the populace knows that there's an upper bound of available money and that they're not going to give up their money in pursuit of something like this, mm -hmm. And yeah, it really does limit the power of the government. The populace thinks that there's no upper bound and they're not aware of it. That's why I think the minute, the minute that Bitcoin diverges from 21 million, it's over. Mm. It'll be over. It'll be all over. Yes, which is why it won't, right? Because I Yeah. I mean, I won't run that software, but you know, this is something, this is like something that kind of haunts me is the loss of orthodox thinking over generations. Like I'm, mm. I'm, I'm actually becoming like wholly like a fan of orthodox monetary thinking. And it's funny because I'm, I'm an atheist. I'm not like into, mm. I, I'm not, I don't really like the term orthodox. I don't really like religion, but over generations, you, you know, youth is a reaction against orthodoxy. I don't see how you can be a youth and not rebel against orthodox thinking. And when it comes to money, I think that's also probably natural as well. And so maybe this is gets like, maybe if you know more about the fourth turning and, 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 and like how these cycles go, maybe you can tell me, but I, 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 I'm very perplexed. And when I jump again, I'm jumping into this future where Bitcoin has subsumed all of the economic premium that there is. And Bitcoin is now the center of value in the world. I think the question isn't how do we get to that place? Because I believe we'll get to that place. 
I think the bigger question is, how do we convince our children to teach their children, aka Mm -hmm. our grandchildren, to maintain convertibility when they start to think it's not important? How do we set up institutions and like a historical like base of knowledge that maintains that orthodox thinking through multiple generations? That's the challenge. Wow. It's I'm reminded here of how family fortunes are lost in three generations. Um, I read the book Fiat Currency Inflation in France, where they're going through the, I believe it's pronounced the Assignat currency situation. They had a hyperinflation there, which occurred exactly three generations after um, the prior hyperinflation, where they completely swore it off, said they would never do it again. They'd never manipulate the money. Three generations later, they forgot. So that's a it's a it's a very prescient question to ask. Is how do we ritualize or institutionalize the? You know, we we have to make twenty one million sacrosanct somehow in a way that propagates across generations, such that our grandchildren don't forget. Right? They don't forget that fixed supply. Money, honest money is, it's hard to overstate its importance, I think. It is. It is. For humanity. Very hard slash impossible to overstate it. But I just discovered it for myself. Right. Within the last six years, I discovered it. I didn't know it. But I, I did. I intuited it. I intuited. I grew up intuiting that there was a problem. I always knew there was a problem. Yes. They didn't know Same. what the problem was. Same. And yeah, and I, I you know, gra- great gratitude to Michael Saylor for really framing this as a discussion around energy, ultimately, mm-hmm. because energy is something that people from all walks of life understand, right? It also appeals to us on a more spiritual level. Like if you've had, especially, you know, people in, Southern California, they always want to talk about energy and it, you can feel it. It's money is that, right? It's just, it's just the highest form of economic energy. And it makes all the intuitive sense in the world. If you come to look at money as energy, that your money should be as scarce and hard to, you know, hard to produce as in fixed supply as the energy it is meant to emblematize, if that oh, makes man. sense. Can I, can I, uh, I'm going to start a tangent, redirect me if you don't think it's a good idea or cut it out. We love tangents. The tangent that like occupied so much of my brain space a couple months ago was the lie that proof of stake is more economically efficient. I was so angry and I'm, I still hate this lie, but I sort of gotten over it. Every monetary system has at its core proof of work. Mm -hmm. There is no money system that is not based on proof of work. And so if you are peddling a monetary system that doesn't have proof of work, then you are marketing a lie. Mm-hmm. The current monetary system, our dollar system, 
actually is a proof of work system. The dollar is based on A, several things. Number one, oil is priced in dollars. It's very clearly a measure of energy resources as priced in dollars. It's like there's not, you don't have to have a huge imagination to see how energy and work in pricing oil through dollars is a proof of work system. Also, the US, the US military, if you look at the military, you could just like in the most abstract way, you'll look at the military as an entropy delivery platform. Like how much entropy can the US deliver at a distance and thus be the police for the world and the security guarantee gives our dollars value? Again, that is a proof of work system. Yeah. And like um that guy Jason Lowry has been he's been yeah. so eloquent. He's been so eloquent about this. Like actually when Lowry appeared, I felt like I could rest <laughs> because I was so up in arms about this. And then he took it to like a total other level. But yeah. then mostly the proof of work system and um uh um, Parker Lewis makes this point that, you know, the, the, the dollars actually don't get their value from military or taxation, but dollars get their value from the threat of confiscation that, that there's at the time he wrote Parker's essay that Bitcoin is not based on nothing. There was $70 trillion of debt. And I think, uh, it was 14 times the money supply or 40, mm. 45 times the money. There's like $1.5 trillion and $70 trillion in debt. So every dollar is loaned out 40 times. And so dollars actually, real dollars are scarce. And to pay your debts, your car payment, your house payment, you actually have to work and compete for dollars. Mm -hmm. And it was debt itself that gives dollars value and nothing else. Mm. That. Mm -hmm is a proof of work system. It is all of us going out, finding jobs and competing for dollars that we must have to pay our debts or else someone will take away our homes. That is a proof of work system. Mm -hmm. And if you're saying that your new system doesn't use proof of work, well, the way that proof of stake systems have their value is that they are priced in dollars. So you are a free rider on the proof of work of another system. If you're a proof of work system mm -hmm. and they, and, and not only that, you're adding a layer of abstraction and computational complexity on top of the existing system and saying that you're not part of the existing system. Bitcoin is so much more efficient than two systems. One of which says it doesn't even use any energy. It makes me so, it's so frustrating to me. I think Bitcoin's proof of work system is so gorgeous. It's so remarkable. And the other problem with proof of stake is that, yes, dollars require a ton of work to support the dollar system. However, mm. making new dollars requires zero energy. So mm. in the short term, dollars, do, dollars are very, very creatable for nothing, which hurts everybody. Now, you and I, we can't create new dollars unless we can. I mean, if we can get loans, we can create dollars. Mm -hmm. But the person who create the most dollars uh, and, and beat us at that game is the central bank. And so if your new proof of stake currency is built on dollars, 
then the person who can, for no cost, take control of your system is the person who can print the dollars. And so a proof of stake system enshrines with total power the current people who are in control of the system. And it's still a proof of work system, but it's a proof of work system that has escape clauses that are exploitable by the people who control it. It's, it, it's, it's so, I, I, I just hate it. I just, I just hate that it gets repeated. It gets repeated in media. It gets repeated in articles. <laughs> that was a gorgeous tangent. Okay. And this is the same problem, right? It's the same problem we're talking about with gold and later the fully fiat central bank is that gold is proof of work, but the fiat built on top of it, right? Fractional reserve serves as kind of the bridge from proof of work to this proof of stake model Mm -hmm. enshrined in the modern fiat central bank. So we've, we've, we've been trying to move away from work, right? We're trying to, we're almost trying to economize ourselves around work, but that is standing in defiance of thermodynamics, right? (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. like the greatest fool's errand there has ever been. The, The ultimate Sisyphean task. Um, and yeah, so, so proof of stake, central banking is proof of stake sitting on, sitting atop gold's proof of work and Bitcoin is just, I mean, it is beautiful because it has just created this mechanism for money that has perfect fidelity to energy itself or perfect fidelity to thermodynamics. And it's like, (laughs) We sound crazy and religious, but it's like it's the only thing humanity ever needed to cooperate at scale without coercion. Something like that. It's it's really remarkable. And every time we talk about proof of stake, I'm reminded of this verse in Matthew. This is Matthew 25, 29. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That yeah. is proof of stake, right? That's brutal. It's, yeah, it's total. It's total. Yeah, I totally agree. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and it doesn't work. It rips human social cohesion apart mm-hmm. every single time and i think people don't know why to grasp the current system requires months or years of contemplation only to get to the point that you realize you will never con- you'll never understand it bitcoin is so simple you know, like I know that I was again for the hundredth time I was trying to explain to my father-in-law last night, but despite 
<laughs> obstacles like that, Bitcoin is quite simple. Mm-hmm. And actually, the things that you need to remember about Bitcoin are even simpler. 21 million. That's it. There's only 21 million. And the share of Bitcoin that you have is the share you, you will have until you decide to sell it. And that's actually all that matters. Mm-hmm. Your share, the number of shares you have that represent your share of the economy mm-hmm. is the share you will always have. And no one can dilute that. And as society gets wealthier, you'll get wealthier too in real terms. That's so simple. Yeah. And as you described earlier with convertibility as the vote, right? It is the vote, the energy vote. The vote. Yep. Bitcoin, perfect fidelity to energy, whatever share you hold, whatever space you occupy on this absolutely scarce monetary network, um, that is yours, right? That is your voice. That is your influence. That is your, that is your say-so in the world in a way. And it is, you know, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible that there is so much complexity around this that we, in the Bitcoin rabbit hole, spend thousands upon thousands of hours talking about it. But ultimately, it is crystallized in this pure simplicity of 21 million. You cover it in Bitcoin and the tyranny of time scarcity. It's one of my favorite essays. And I think you cover it quite eloquently. And I've seen your language from that essay. It's everywhere. I read, I reading that Ross Stevens art, that Ross Stevens investor letter. I was like, oh my God, there's so much breed love in here. It's fantastic. It's so good. <laughs> it was like such, such a, so much great thought in there. I'm so grateful to you for that. Thank you, my friend. No, I, and thank you to Ross. You know, he reached out to me directly when he was drafting that letter and asked to use language for my writing. And I was, you know, thrilled and absolutely supportive because this is the other beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing about Bitcoin. It really puts us all on the same team in a way that no other social construction ever has, you know, like team Bitcoin. Wow. Wow. Has more gusto than any thing I've ever been a part of. I got to tell you, I had this gut check moment and it really pushed me into another level. My favorite um, Bitcoin wallet is Samurai wallet. I'm, uh, I'm an atheist. I've been an atheist hardcore atheist since I was 18, but I was raised in a Jewish household, had a bar mitzvah and, you know, Jewish issues. Like it still touches me, even though I'm not religious at all. Mm. And um, Samurai Wallet sent out a tweet and I, I don't know the year, a bunch of um, white nationalists had been deplatformed and Samurai Wallet tweeted out white nationalists or white supremacists are welcome to use Samurai Wallet. And I had this like knee jerk lefty part of my brain that was like, well, I'm not using it anymore if they're inviting white nationalists to use it. And I, and I, and I sat down and I was like, well, no, actually it's the best wallet (laughs) and it doesn't matter if they're using it. That's the point. That's actually the point of Bitcoin is that the part of me that's still like, um, 
identifies with like the Jewish education I had that reacts in a social way to the concept of white nationalism or white supremacists. And, you know, that's fine. Like that's the point of Bitcoin is that it's for, it is Bitcoin is for enemies. I feel like I, I got to another level of appreciating Bitcoin and Samurai Wallet because I was like, I'm still going to use it. It's, 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 I mean, I'm running a dojo node on my desk right here. It's just a dope wallet and it's for me and it makes, it makes me more powerful. And I think Saifedean's analogy to gunpowder is the best one. If, even if your enemy, if your enemy is going to use it, you can't reject on principle. You have to use it too. That's right. Pragmatism over principle in the instance of both gunpowder and money. Yeah. 